Good morning. If y'all please turn to your Bibles in John 18, 1 through 14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out to with his disciples across the brook Kindred, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas had procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests uh, and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came toward them and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they threw back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Then they led him to Ananias, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of the Lord. I come here to this building just about every week. It's good to be here just about every week on Monday. I'm down the hall with five or six young men training to be church planters, pastors, and missionaries through the Bonhoeffer House. I mean, it's just really wonderful to be here uh, where the next generation of uh, church leaders are being trained up and sent out and happy to be part of that. I always like coming back here in this particular space because right here where I stand is where I married my wife, Jenny, uh, almost 17 years ago. And if you were there, you feel old right now. Uh, I see some of you who were there. It was, it was greener uh, back then. But. So I'm just thankful to be here and to be preaching this morning. This morning we have this story that John is telling in his gospel about his friend Jesus, and in particular about the betrayal of Jesus. Jesus was betrayed. You know, in, in, in the not-too-distant past and not-too-far-away place around the same time in B.C. 44, Julius Caesar was assassinated. He was assassinated at a meeting of the Senate on the steps of the theater of Pompeii on the Ides of March. He was warned by many people, beware, beware the Ides of March. Uh, And yet he went anyway. Just months before his assassination, he was named by the Senate. He was given this kind of honorary title of of dictator for life. ruler for life. And when they sent people to deliver the message to him, uh, the legend goes, he did not stand to greet them. And uh, and that was part of their, the conspirators were looking at him thinking, well, he thinks that he's above us. He thinks he's a king. One of the moral of the story here is if guests come to you, stand to greet them because what happens to Caesar is not good. Okay, what, what, what ends up happening is they form a conspiracy. Right, and they invite him to this, this meeting of the Senate. And 
uh, they crowded around him. They snuck daggers in under their togas. And a huge crowd surrounds him under the guise of getting him to sign off on something. And then they begin to stab him. He died from blood loss from 23 wounds. But the most devastating blow of all was, was, was when he turned around and he saw his best friend. Shakespeare has immortalized this moment for us uh, with the words, et tu, Brute? Brutus, his friend, he turns around, is literally stabbing him in the back. And he turns and he says, and you, Brutus? And you? Jesus here in John 18 has a similar experience, doesn't he? And every one of us at some point, has had an and you moment. And you, Brutus? Right, and you? We've all, we've all at, at times, we've been betrayed. And many times, these are very small things, right? Like a, a, you share something in confidence with a friend, and they go behind your back, and then they use this thing that you've shared so that they can make themselves kind of, you know, like, look, guess what I know? Have you heard about and you find out, and what's, and you, right? So, sometimes, it, maybe it's a, a childhood boyfriend or girlfriend, you're, getting, you're, you're betrayed or you're dumped by someone. Maybe it's a coworker betrays your confidence to try to get ahead of you. Sometimes these betrayals are bigger, involving family, close friends. These things happen. These things happen. We find ourselves mumbling our own version of, and you, Brutus, but this morning, we already have a bit of good news here in, the, in this Gospel of John, and it's the good news that even in the times where we are betrayed, we have a Savior who can, who can understand how that feels. We don't have a distant God who says, get over it. We have a Savior who also was betrayed. Hebrews 2, uh, verse 17 tells us that He is made like His brothers. He's made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. See, a high priest represents the people, right? And so Jesus, just in every way, he has experienced the types of things that we have experienced, including what we see this morning, betrayal, betrayal. This is what we see here. We're going to see a few truths about, uh, about reality that are here present in this story. One truth is that life is war. Life is war. Okay, so, so if you're wondering, what, what is he talking about? Pay attention to the text here. You, you notice the battle language that's happening here in this story. Y'all been working through this, this powerful and beautiful time between John 13 and John 17. This time where Jesus is hanging out with his friends and he's doing this kind of weird thing where he's washing their feet and then they're having a meal together, they're singing together, they're eating together, they're praying together, they're having conversations together. He's talking about he, how he's the true vine and, and that they're to remain in him and there's this, there's this glory prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the prayer of the Lord. Last week you guys were in that in John 17, and it's just this time of peace, peace, peace. But, but I'm looking out here, and I know some of you remember record players, you know, turntables. And you remember when someone comes stomping into a room where you're listening to music on the turntable? 
Maybe you're sitting there and you're enjoying a peaceful time. You're listening to an album and somebody comes stomping into that room. And what happens? Yeah, it scratches, right? The needle jumps. If they're really a, a, a heavy walker like my children, like, John 18, between, between verse 1 and 2, the needle skips. The record jumps. Just look at verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, this prayer. He went out with his disciples and he crosses this stream, this brook. There's a garden. They go there. We find out later, they go there all the time to pray and hang out, which he and his disciples entered. And then, and then, and then the needle skips. And it, we see that Judas, who betrayed him, he also knew this place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Peace has been broken. Judas enters the scene and he brings a band of soldiers with him. This is battle language. This is a mob stalking Jesus. They come like a mob with their torches and their lanterns and their swords this is war. This is why Peter, as we find out later in the story, jumps out with his sword. He gets it. Peace has been disrupted, and the battle is at hand. Swords are drawn, torches are lit, garden walks are disrupted, betrayals happen, life, life is war. The second thing, the second truth to pay attention to here is the truth that we, ought, we have to fight the right enemy. We have to fight the right enemy. In, in a war, there's an enemy, but we have to fight the right enemy. In his, he gave some radio talks during the Second World War, later got uh, published as the book Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis had this to say about the war going on around us. He said this, enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. This is is what's happening in John 18, is is the veil is being pulled back, and we get to see that there's there's a war going on, and there is an enemy. Let's back up the story just a bit to see what Jesus says before before his prayer of chapter 17. In John 16, 32 and 33, he says this, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own house, to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Right, so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, you have an enemy, okay? You have an enemy, and, and, and you will face opposition. You will face tribulation from the world. Now, if you, you uh, know your Bible or you've seen the signs at sports games, John 3.16, you know that earlier in John, uh, this word world is used in a different way. John 3, 16, for God so loved, what? The world. 
What did he do? He sent his only, his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, in John 3.16, this, this word for world is being used in a different way. Here's what, here's what is happening in John 3.16. Uh, what, what we're finding out about the, word, about the world is that God is not a God just of the Jewish people in this particular time. In other words, in other words the Messiah was not going to be a regional ruler who would overthrow a temporary government. Okay, so f- because God is not limited to a particular place and time and people. What, what John 3.16 is saying is that God is the creator of the cosmos. And God so loves the world that he created all the people in the world that he isn't coming just to redeem he, the Hebrews. He's not coming just to redeem Israel. He's coming for every tribe, every tr- tongue, every people. Who will we know, according to Revelation, be singing together, harmonizing in the kingdom to come? God so loved the world because there are people all over the world that God loves, that God created, that that God wants to save. If they would believe in Jesus, then Jesus would come not to condemn them, but to save them, but to rescue them. So in John 16, Jesus is using the word world in a different way. He's saying in in John chapter 16 that the world is a a kingdom in opposition to the true king. The the world is is a kingdom in opposition to the true king. A a rebel kingdom that opposes the true king. And as a result, the world, this kingdom of the world, hates the citizens of the true kingdom. He reminds them, you will face tribulation and suffering at the hands of the world. It views us as spies in the land, which I guess is true enough. The kingdom of the world is our true enemy. Consider Paul's words in Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. You don't have to turn there. Just listen with me. When you, this may be even familiar to you. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, we are in enemy-occupied territory. That's true, but don't make the mistake that Peter made. Right In the story, they come, they, 600 guys come with their swords and, their, and, and they come to battle and Peter steps out in front and he, uh, he, he, he strikes out against this guy, we find out his name here, the servant's name was Malchus. And Peter doesn't know what he's doing, he's just striking out and he, and he, and he ends up cutting this guy's ear off. You ever thought about this guy, Malchus? I was reading this story this week thinking about what a story that Malchus had. He is a bondservant, meaning he does what the high priests and the family, he does what they tell him to do. Right? He, does he know Jesus? It's likely that he's heard Jesus. Jesus has been preaching in the town and in the temple. We don't know. All we know is he shows up. He shows up for work and he gets his ear cut off for it. Sometimes I think about him just in just he's just holding his ear in shock 
right? Think about what it would be like for him to look back up at Jesus. You know, swords are being drawn and you can hear them being drawn all around you. And Jesus steps in the midst of this. And, and what does he do? What does he do? He, he reaches out and he, he heals Malchus. Right? He takes his ear and he puts it back together. And here this guy is, and he's here to bind Jesus. In fact, he's probably one of the people who bind him in verse 12, doing what the officers tell him to do. He's come to shackle Jesus, and Jesus reaches out with his hands and heals him. In his lowest, most painful moment, this true king responds by healing him. You know, I, I wonder if Jesus has ever reached out and touched you in your lowest moments and healed you. What kind of story do you have to tell? Do you remember that? The times, more than one probably, that Jesus has reached out to you and touched you and healed you and changed you? No, the enemy isn't Malchus. Right? The enemy's not Malchus. It, it, it's not even Judas. Okay, stick with me for a second. Consider Judas. John keeps reminding us that Judas is a betrayer. He mentions it multiple times in this passage. Uh, Judas was there, you know, Judas, the, be- the one who betrayed Jesus. Now, Judas was probably a pretty common name. We know there was at least one other Judas in the group that was following Jesus. And so some of this is to help us know which Judas is it. But he, he could have said his last name or his father's name. But instead he says, the betrayer. Judas, by all looks of it, when you read the Gospels, is a greedy coward. He comes by night ambushing his friend in a garden with a crowd of 600, give or take. All for what? 30 pieces of silver? And what did Jesus ever do to Judas? He, what, he, he gave his time away for free? He allowed someone to pour perfume, this extravagant wastefulness in Judas's eyes of pouring perfume on his feet instead of selling the perfume and getting the money, which was a prophetic anointing for this very moment of betrayal and suffering? No, but even Judas, Judas comes under the same heading that Paul says in Ephesians 6, right? Judas is flesh and blood, and, and we're not to wrestle against flesh and blood. Therefore, he's not the enemy either. In fact, earlier in John 13, uh, there, there's this interesting scene that happens where John is describing it first person. He's there, and he's saying, hey, we were all around the table. And when we were all around the table, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he said, listen, I'm telling you, one of you guys is going to betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, and they were uncertain, who, who? uncertain of who he was talking about. One of his disciples, John, who Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was. You can picture Simon Peter like, ask him, who's he talking about? So John, the disciple, leans back and says to Jesus, who is it? And Jesus tells him. He said, it's, it's he who, who, I, who I give this morsel of bread to after I've dipped it. 
And when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then he, after he'd taken the morsel, John says in, in 13, chapter 13, verse 27, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Satan entered into him. Here's what I want you to do. Is get it out of your head, anything that you, that you picture right now. Right? If, if Hollywood has, has inputted visions of what this might look like, just get it out of your head. Because what, what we know is that Judas didn't float out of there with his head spinning around. This wasn't something like that. Because the disciples, they're, they're wondering, why did Judas leave? Because Jesus tells them to go, and they, and they think, well, he's got the money. Maybe he's going to get food for the feast. There's nothing abnormal about Judas when he gets up and he leaves. No, what's happening here is, is similar to what happens when Peter tries to tell Jesus, you shouldn't suffer, you should, you should reign. Don't, don't suffer, Jesus. Don't die, Jesus. And what does Jesus say to his best friend? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Here's what, here's what Jesus and John is doing. is They're pulling back the veil and they're saying, listen, there is a battle at hand. There, is, there are spiritual authorities that are at, at war right now. And when, when we follow things that are opposed to Jesus and opposed to his will and opposed to his kingdom, then we're actually following Satan. This is what Judas was doing. When Judas in his heart decided, I will betray this man, Satan entered into him. There is a rebel prince leading a battle against the true king. The Bible calls him Satan. We're either following him or we're following Christ. There's no Switzerland. In Ephesians 2, at the beginning of that chapter, we find this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is the same, this is the force against the kingdom. Judas's betrayal came through the whispers of Satan. He was following the prince of the power of the air. So listen, we need to fight the right enemy. Our neighbor who bothers us is not our enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against our political opponents. We don't wrestle against the bad driver that was in your way on the way to church. You ever get behind someone that you're frustrated with and then they end up going to the same church as you? If they're here this morning, you just, just repent of your anger at them. Embrace them later. Don't tell them. Your, your kids, parents, your kids are not your enemies. You ever been trying to get them out the door, maybe even for church? It feels like they're the other team, doesn't it? Like it's, it's us against them. Who's going to win this, this battle? Kids, your parents are not the enemy. Your spouse is not the enemy. Flesh and blood is not the enemy. So fight the right enemy. Another truth is we need to fight the right way. Fight the right way. Use the right weapons. I bet there are many of you who, like me, have figuratively cut an ear off here and there, like Peter does to Malchus. And let's be honest, felt good, felt natural. Peter's responding in a natural way. But let's come to the defense of Peter for just a moment here. Luke records this same account 
But he adds something to it that Jesus says. Jesus says, uh, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? You remember that when he sent them out two by two and he said, hey, don't take anything with you. Just go into the towns, preach the gospel, and they'll take, you'll, you'll get taken care of. And they, they say to Jesus, no, we didn't lack anything. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag keep it. And, and same, if you've got a knapsack, keep it. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and go buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has, been, has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. I like to picture them gathering those swords. You got a sword? You got, I got, Peter's got a sword. They bring two swords. This, this is the most pathetic army ever. Look, Lord, we have two swords. And, uh, and Jesus said to them, it is enough. It is enough. You know, that, that's the ESV translation in Greek. It's a phrase that most likely is a gentle rebuke, meaning that's enough. In other words, you remember how Jesus has been praying. You know, there's a lot of things you won't understand, but when I give you my Holy Spirit, you'll start to get it. And this is one of those times where he's, he's probably saying to them, that's enough. You're not going to get this yet, but one day you'll understand it. Because what Jesus is saying is he's saying, remember, I sent you out two by two. I sent you out with nothing. That was a time of peace. War was out over there. You were, this was a time of peace. Now it's a time of war. The, the times have changed and they're changing in this very moment that Jesus sees coming where he's betrayed, where the armies come. And no longer will they be in a time of comfort in a time of peace, because the scripture has to be fulfilled that Jesus will be numbered among the transgressors. They're coming for him. Jesus is trying to make a point. So much of our anxiety and worry and anger is because we think that we are in a time of peace and comfort. And when things get in the way of what I want, the comfort that I want, the peace that I want, that thing or that person becomes an enemy. And he's saying, you, you've got to change your mind about what you should expect to his, to his disciples. We're not entitled to comfort. He's trying to shock their eyes open. This is not the time of peace and comfort. Look back at verse 11. He says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Clearly, Jesus was not trying to get them to get their swords together to physically fight against the Romans or the, their Jewish brothers and sisters. He says, put your sword, sword away. In the kingdom of the true king, our enemies are not flesh and blood and our weapons are not swords. We'll find later that Jesus could have resisted this mob without a single sword. He doesn't need the swords. But he fights in a different way. Our king. Jesus fights in a different way. Peter fights in a natural way. He closes his hand on the sword and he's ready. And Jesus, so, so there's a closed fist, closed hand kind of way to fight. And Jesus fights with his hands open. Right? He fights with his hands open. In John 13, how can you wash the hands of your disciples, your friends, or wash the feet of your friends if you're holding the sword, right? Jesus, is, he's got his hands open to serve. He's got his hands open to eat and share meals with them. John 13. 
He has his hands open to sing together in praise. The other gospel accounts tell us after the meal, before they go on this walk, they sing hymns together. He has his hands open in John 17 to to pray, to to lift up his hands in prayer. We know there's a gap between 18.1 and 2 that John doesn't tell us about where Jesus also is praying alone in the garden with his hands open saying, Father, Father, if this, if you could take this cup from me, if you could take this cup, but yet not, not my will, but thy will be done. He has his hands open in submission to the will of the Father, and he has his hands open to suffer in the place of others. When he tells Peter to put the sword away, he said, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This language of the cup, the cup, the cup is the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup of the cross. As the old hymn goes, death and the curse were in that cup. O Christ, was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark dregs. Tis empty now for me. Jesus, Jesus fights with his hands open. He lays down his life for others. He steps forward to consider the scene. They come, and instead of shrinking back or hiding, and they could have hear, heard this this group coming, seen them coming by their torchlight, but no, he steps forward. And what does he do? Right, he, says, he says, who are you looking for? It's me. Let these people go. He's, even in this moment, he's self-sacrificing. He's putting himself out there. He's fighting this battle with his hands open to receive the will of God, the suffering in the place of others. This is, according to Luther, uh, Martin Luther said that the, the real miracle of Gethsemane is that not one of the other disciples were arrested or harmed. Well, that's, that's a miracle that Jesus was, he's fulfilling his own promise. He's fighting with his hands open. And we model our fighting after him. We serve the dirty, the dirty feet that Jesus washed. We eat with brothers and sisters. We pray, we sing together, we submit to the will of the Father. We lay down our lives for others. These are the weapons of the true kingdom. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight for our neighbors who are flesh and blood. We don't fight to cut down and destroy, but to rescue and heal. We, rather than take the sword out, we need to hit our knees and pray. We need to fight the right way. And then finally, we, we follow the right hero. Follow the right hero. We love as people to identify with a hero. This is, we see it now, there's like, there's, there's not just Marvel movies, there's a Marvel cinematic universe. There's, every week there's like a new Marvel movie, there's been like nine or ten Batmans all telling the same Batman story, some good, some not good. It's not a modern thing, there was Ulysses and Achilles, and we, we identify with heroes, Samson and David, we love to, to, to have a sense of good defeating evil, and, and, and we're with the good guys. We want to identify with them. We long for that. And where, where we go wrong is when we either follow the wrong leader, as we saw in Ephesians and what Judas is doing here, where they're following the prince of the power of the air, uh, or sometimes we try to be the hero. Right? So, so if, if, if Jesus is saying, listen, get your... We're, we're, life is war, it's not comfort. 
right? The, the desire to have peace and comfort is often what leads us to anxiety and worry, but also uh, when, we, when we are confronted with those sorts of things, when we try to be the hero, when we put it all on our shoulders and it's all up to us and we just try to, to work, work our way through it and, and be our own savior, we also experience crushing anxiety and worry because we're not meant to be the hero. We look in this story and we see that that there is a battle at hand. There is an enemy. As a matter of fact, in this story, uh, where, where do you see in the scriptures or in the ancient history Jew and Gentile uniting together? Well, you see it in the church of Christ and you see it in another place when they come to get them. When the kingdom of the world unites to go against the true king, right? The, the Roman centurions, the Jewish temple guards are united together against this king. There's a real enemy. There's a real battle. There's but there's also a hero. There's also a hero. Peter jumps in front. Can you imagine Peter? Here's Jesus. This is the guy that's walked on water. This is the guy that was taking a nap during a terrible thunderstorm. And, and when they woke him up, he was like, all right, peace be still. And the storm stopped. And they were like, who are you? And now 600 guards come up. And he's like, it's all right, Jesus, I got this. Just You hang out back there. I've got a small sword. We're not meant to be the hero. We have, our, we have a hero. Our duty is not to jump in front of him, blindly wailing at opponents. Our job is to follow him, to trust him, to be in him. He knew exactly what was going to happen. This is not the, the tragic story of a possible hero that got defeated. Right? Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. This is the will of the Father. This is the plan of redemption. This is... This is part of his plan. He is in power and in control. He could have avoided it. He could have stopped it. As a matter of fact, there's this powerful scene here where Jesus, uh, when they come and they say, he says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, in verse 5. And Jesus said to, to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Why? Why? You know, as John highlights in six or seven other places in this gospel and the history of Jesus, Jesus uses the same language here. The same language that the Greek translation of Exodus 3.14, ego eimi, I am he, or I am. This is what, when Moses approaches the bush that's burning and God speaks to him and God says, you're going to set my people free. I'm going to send you to Egypt. And Moses said, well, who will I tell them has sent me? This is what God says. This is God claiming this name, saying, I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. And so when Jesus steps forward with power and says the words, I am, the crowd falls back. This is not just falling back in reverence as though someone is claiming this and they're like, whoa, he's going to get struck with lightning. The Roman centurions wouldn't have cared one bit about that. This, I think, friends, is their bodies telling them something that their minds and their hearts didn't get. This right here, this is God in the flesh. There is something powerful about this man. There's, so, there's something so powerful about this man I don't know what's happening to me, but I'm going down. This is our hero. 
He is the one that spoke creation into existence. And he upholds the universe by a word of his power. And by a word of his power, he set 600 men on their butts, on their bottoms, in a garden in Gethsemane. And then something happens. Judas approaches the betrayer. We can identify with Jesus in this because we've been betrayed. He was betrayed in our place. His response to Judas is even more emotionally devastating than Julius Caesar turning around and saying, and you, Brutus? Luke records it this way. When Judas drew near to give him a kiss, Jesus said to him, Judas, did you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas, with a kiss? Can you feel the sadness that Jesus felt? Imagine the look in his eyes as he watched Judas approaching all the way up to him to lean in and give him an intimate, familiar kiss on the cheek. We, we are not the hero. We're not the hero. As a matter of fact, you and I, friends, we're the betrayer. As the song goes, it was my sins that held him there. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers, it was me and it was you. We've all been betrayed, but we've all been the betrayer too. We're the Brutus. The story goes that when Caesar saw, turned back and saw his friend among his assassins, he pulled up his toga over his head. It was, he just couldn't, couldn't bear to see his friend. He couldn't bear to look at him and know, this is my best friend. He's... He's one of my betrayers. But our hero, our king, he faces his betrayal with his eyes wide open. He doesn't hide under his robe. He steps out, steps forward. He looks Judas right in the eyes. And friends, he looks you and I right in the eyes. Like the father that he tells about in one of his stories, the story of the prodigal son, he, he runs to us in our lowest shame. He embraces us in those moments. He holds our shoulders and looks into our eyes when we know we least deserve it. And he doesn't hide under his toga, but he, he, he takes his robe and he covers us. He covers us and he claims us as his own. He says, you are with me. You will not have peace in the world, but you can have peace in me. He hides our shame until it is finally cleansed for good. In the end, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it was won on our behalf by the flesh and blood of Jesus it was his broken flesh and poured out blood that secured our victory. He has overcome the world. He has been the flesh and blood in our place to cover our sins. God's own son, our Savior, Jesus. And like, unlike Judas, who went from 
the table to betrayal. He has brought us from betrayer to the table. He's brought us close. Lay down your swords. Lift up your eyes to him. Open up your hands in service to Jesus, our true king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you, while we were far off, while we were enemies, while we were betrayers, you sent your son, you've pursued us and you pursued us and you pursued us. And Father, there are some here this morning you are pursuing even now. Rescue them, rescue us, bring us to the table, Lord. Lift up our chins that we might look to Christ and see in our King and our hero a forgiving friend, a saving God, a Lord who has seen all that we've done in opposition to him and still covered us, and still drew us near. We pray that you would draw us near even again today, in Christ's name. Amen.